Hey everyone, I'm Alan Schimmel, CEO of MediaOps, Editor-in-Chief of DevOps.com, Security Boulevard, Container Journal, and you're watching DevOps Unbound. DevOps Unbound is a bi-weekly video series where we have some of the leading lights in, in our community talk about topics of interest around DevOps. Uh, we're lucky enough to be sponsored uh, DevOps Unbound by our friends at Tricentis. So many thanks to Tricentis for their sponsorship. But this is a MediaOps event. Let me introduce you to today's panel, and then we're going to jump into our topic. Um, let me first introduce the guy with all the robots in his background there, Paul Bruce, with a 404 shirt. Paul, welcome. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Thanks, Alan. Um, so my name is Paul Bruce, as you said. Um, I'm uh, on the nerdy side. I'm a performance and reliability geek. Right. Um, that's just a place of complexity that I love to. It's just what I, it's just my bag. It's just what I like to do. Um, on the other side, I'm a community organizer, work with uh, DevOps Days Boston and uh, the Boston DevOps Meetup. Uh, I am hosting an event uh, along with Liz Wong Jones this year uh, called Olifast uh, around observability, a new vendor neutral and also uh, community focused, but also the, the open telemetry project focused uh two-day event. It's half days so that we don't burn people out. Um, and I work with the Tricentis team uh, since the Neoload acquisition. Again, performance reliability. I was with uh, Neodis and Neoload uh, for years now. Uh, really love that team. And uh, I love my new one, the broader one at Tricentis. So um, that's me. Very cool. Thanks, Paul. And then joining Paul today is uh, very lucky to have her, someone I've had the pleasure of interviewing more than several times now over this past year of COVID, but hopefully soon to see in person, my friend Christine Yen, Christine is CEO of Honeycomb. Christine, welcome. Hello. It's wonderful to be here. Um, Alan, shared, you shared my title, uh, but my background is as a product engineer. Um, Honeycomb, for anyone who isn't familiar, is a tool, who, a tool for observability. Um, and I love working on it and I love talking about this topic because even though I tend more towards the you know, software engineering side, I have done my fair share of breaking production. And so mm -hmm. this topic is um, near and dear to my heart for software engineers to do that less and find out, uh, find out what their code really did more quickly. Very cool. Thanks, Christine. It's great to have you here. And then last but not least is my co-host of DevOps Unbound. Uh, We've worked together for probably longer than either of us want to admit, but uh, it's hard to believe we're both only, you know, 25. But uh, CTO here at MediaOps, CEO of Accelerated Strategies Group, Mitch Ashley. Hey, Mitch, welcome. Thank you, Alan. But the best 25 this year, you know, hey, again, 25 again, right? <laughs> yeah, 25 so, again, again. Anyway, yep, thanks, Mitch. So today's show... Really, we're going to explore the intersection, or maybe it's a border, between uh, performance, performance testing, and observability. What, how do they play with each other nicely? What is the interaction? What is the relationship? And, and you know, for those in our audience, you may be looking at it and saying, well, observability is kind of almost post-deployment. Hopefully we're doing some performance testing pre-deployment and then, you know, post-deployment. But how, how, you know, 
I don't know if I see a nexus right away, but there's in my mind anyway, there's an obvious nexus, there's an obvious connection. Um, so let, let's talk about at a high level, how, you know, how is observability and performance testing uh, connected and how can they, how can we get a one plus one equal five or four out of, out of, you know, performance testing and observability. Christine, if, if it's okay, I'm going to ask you to kick off with that and kind of lay out the framework, the, the ground rules, the, you know, and we'll, and we'll all jump from there. Yeah, well, laying out the framework and ground rules is a, is a little bit of a um, big ask for oh. early in the morning, but I'll, I'll do what I can. <laughs> okay, um, I'm, I'm sure you'll do great. For, I'm wearing the wrong shirt for this. I often, um, I think I've come on one of these interviews with my, um, you know, test and production shirt, but it's a, it's a phrase that um, too many folks, it, it's, it, it can be interpreted in many ways, right? What does testing and production mean? Um, there is a version of it that means, well, I'm, I'm not going to run tests beforehand. I'm just going to see what breaks in production and, and, and try to um, fix it after it's impacted users, obviously that's not what any of us mean. And there's a version of that of it that means, hey, look, when you write pre-production tests, when you write any sort of tests, what you're trying to do is you're trying to compare actuals versus expected. Right? You're trying to form a hypothesis, observe reality, and then think about that difference. Isn't that really just a different phrasing of what we're trying to do when we're looking at production, when we're using mm -hmm. our logging or monitoring or observability tools to see what actually happened when our code is in production. And so I love, I think it's a huge intersection, a huge overlap between things like performance testing and observability because we're all using the same skill set. We're all using um, you know, the same brain sequence, but you know, there's, people seem to think that um, observability is like, can, can be more exciting because it's incidents and downtime and, and alarms are going off. I don't think it is. I think it's all the same. It's just at different points in the development life cycle. It's on different timelines. It's with a different, um, different levels of urgency. But it's it's the same um, it's the same it's the same things we're all just trying to do to come up with hypotheses, validate them, and learn. I really like Christine that um, the way you kind of intersected them together because the environment that we're doing all this has changed substantially. It wasn't that long ago where it was kind of a static flow of writing code. You know, we test it, we CICD, we test it, we deploy it into production, production, and DevOps helped speed that up with automation and tools, and, and of course, tools automation for testing. But now the software stack is fluid, the infrastructure is fluid, the code is fluid because we may be we may have introduced three new changes to containers. Uh, for example, in a cloud native application, since you've really had an opportunity to go and debug or determine what the source of that was. Um, you know, we also have dynamic, dynamic applications that start up and go away. And those things may be long gone by the time we actually look at them. So I think this 
key to observability is also giving you insight into an environment that may not exist at the time that happened. And so you need that information to be able to understand, is this really something I need to fix, address, uh, a bug, a feature, <laughs> whatever it might be. Yeah, and I think um, there's a lot of intersection between um, putting pressure on systems, whether that's through actual users and risking revenues and all sorts of things, um, or doing like pre pre-release type testing or testing in production. There's a performance is about how, how does the system uh, perform to expectations, and there are a number of different people with a number of different expectations. There's the technical expectation, maybe maybe uh, articulated in you know, hope articulated in something as uh, legitimate as an SLO or an SLO, you know, and then, and then measuring them with SLIs and stuff. Um, but there's also user expectation, right? There's the CEO expectation. Uh, there's B2B, right? If you're in some kind of regulated industry and the, that SLA is actually part of a legal requirement, um, that becomes really important. Like we saw that uh, unemployment sites, I don't mean to pick on that kind of work, but that was a mess, right? Same thing with various different, trying to get uh, the vaccine scheduled and stuff. And it's like, why are we still suffering from these systems that you know are out there and they're good enough maybe for the day-to-day, -day, but have never been exercised, have never been, the concept of that, being, that scaling um, has never really come about for that system. Okay, well, what about systems that do by default have scalability as, as a first-class citizen? Um, going back to some of the stuff that Christine said, and actually, Christine, I love uh, your co-founder, Charity, has a, has a phrase, and I'm going to butcher it, but um, it's never not a good idea to have your glasses on when you go driving, right? That, that idea that uh, if you can't see what's going on, that's a big problem. So a lot of people traditionally would have used something like, let's just throw all our APM tools at production. And that's great, but going back to that original thing where I was saying pressure on systems really shows us how well we're doing engineering, right? The impact of that pressure matters too. So as a performance engineer, right? Performance and reliability engineer, I'm constantly not just trying to, as, as my French team would say, make load on a system, <laughs> put load, put pressure on a system, but I also care deeply about being able to measure the impact of that. I'll pause there because we probably have some other questions, but there's more to go into about that. It's not an either or, and it's not about just production or pre-production. It's about what's not a good idea to have visibility. Isn't it a good idea to have visibility on a thing, whether it's putting pressure before release and having visibility or doing that in production. We've got a lot of customers who do testing and who do load testing in production on production sure. systems. This is not an impossible thing, folks, you know? So let me let me try to put this in some kind of context that we, we can jump on. So here's what I hear Christine saying, right? Which is, and, and maybe I'm taking it up a couple notches, right? Getting out of the SLO woods, you know. At the end of the day, what do we all want? We all want our apps, our infrastructure to run better. We want to have good predictability, visibility into how things are performing, right? And whether that is an aspect of performance testing, 
or you want to call it performance monitoring, or do you want to call it observability? At the end of the day, the aim is the same, which is let's understand how our stuff is running and make sure it's running the way we think it should be running, right? So at a very high level, it's almost equating performance or observability. I mean, it's all with the same goal, which is let's make sure our stuff's running good, right? As the best we can. In my mind, and, and Christine, I'll defer to you, certainly over the last year, year and a half, maybe two even, observability has taken on, as it's become more hyped and more, you know, a, a real word, a real thing out there, has taken on almost an even bigger mission than that, where it just doesn't equate with, you know, the goal may be, hey, let's make sure things are running the best we can make them run, right? and, and what, how we expect them to run. But there, like observability has a whole uber mission, right, of, of, of things that people want to do with it or use it for, right? Paul, you mentioned APM. A, a kind of observability subsumed APM, AI ops, all, all of these things. But yet, wait, there's more, right? <laughs> observability does more than that. It, it's, it's become this whole big thing out there. And maybe it, maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong. I'm not here to judge, but you know that I think is 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 really the the crux of this, right? Yeah, we all have the same goals. Is observability part of what observability does? Helping the performance engineer? Absolutely. Is there more to observability? I think so. Christine, you're the observability expert. I'm going to ask you. You know when. You say a word enough times and it starts to lose its meaning and you're like, this starts yeah. to sound funny. <laughs> we, I think you're, there's, there's, we are definitely approaching that um, with observability a little bit. And whenever, whenever I get to that point, I like to pause and remind folks, like, let's look at the, let's like take a deep breath and look at the English word we are using to describe this, right? It's not, it's not um, you know, a bucket full of buzzwords. It's not a bucket full of types of data. It is an ability to see. And yeah. it's the ability to see into our production systems. What do you want to do with that? What can you do with that if you have an improved ability to see? Okay, well, now, now we have the laundry list of all the things that we can do once we have the ability to see into these systems that, as Mitchell mentioned, are so different than they were five or 10 years ago. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, that, that to me is uh, that zooming out behavior is what recenters me when it feels like we're trying to do all the things. And you're like, well, it kind of makes sense. I want to have my glasses on when you're right, when I'm driving. Yeah. Right. Paul. Uh, uh, Christine, you're definitely right about like buzzword, uh, merry-go-round. Uh, I've experienced that with DevOps. I've experienced that with, oh man, I can't believe I'm saying it again, but I gotta, cause people know shift left, right? These, these terms that just get all the things. And like, we go at these things, uh, these different terms, we latch onto them. We try to make it our own. Oh man, vendors love to do that. Right. Uh, we'll take a word and we'll make it ours and we'll try to align it to our product strategy. And 
at the end of the day, it's like there's 150,000 different versions of this thing, which as a performance guy, I'm kind of like, well, you know, it's not bad to have a big sample set, <laughs> but the, the sample set of what's going on in the, in the delivery chain from good idea <laughs> to working software that's making you money is not just in production. Let's take an example of Nike, for instance, right? This is a known thing that, you know, they, they ship the watch, right? The watch that you open up on Christmas day and you go to connect to the internet. And because the servers were swamped, you don't have a good Christmas experience, right? Th that's not the only, I'm just picking it. But that, that kind of situation is a situation where there's a lot of stuff you can do to prevent obvious faults from getting to the point where that's the bad experience. And you also need visibility on the day where your production is having problems, right? And it's not just the day, it's every day. Every day you have a certain non-zero amount of events and issues in your production systems. How do you address those things? Well, there are plenty of situations where if you're only thinking about observability as only applies to production, which by the way, production is what makes you money. Right? If like code is not sitting in production, doing something useful for people, you're not making money off of it necessarily. And a production isn't just out for consumers. It could be all the different constituents in your larger organization, you know? So the, even, even private systems are production, right? And so if something's not out there, then it's not making money. So is that the only place where we should pay attention, where we should have good visibility on logs, traces, and metrics, on understanding how the business imp impacted, um, long and complicated queues and delays in these systems, right? No, I mean, that yes, in our edge and, and final production systems, yes, of course we want that because we don't wanna be in a bad situation, not having right visibility into problems when they're happening in production. But how do you think problems come about in production? Well, there's the emergent ones that we can't possibly know about. Ooh, you know, there's just so much time in the day. But then there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Every line of code is not just an asset. It's a liability. So as you're constantly shipping these things out, there's plenty of things you can do to prevent obvious, and I mean dumb and stupid and obvious things, from getting out there, causing toil, waste, risk, right? And loss of brand and revenue and all that stuff, right? So I think the observability for me is not just in production, right? It's really useful to have classic monitoring in pre-production environments, except for that it's super expensive. Oops. Um, <laughs> and then observability, pieces of observability, which Christine would probably be better to go into, all those things that you can do and what you get out of that, and now we can have use cases. Those also apply to pre-production situations. That's why I'm so excited about that open telemetry project. Um, and the community over there, this notion of being able to emit information from your systems, right? To either build it in directly from your systems or put it on sort of after the fact, right? Sort of replacing some of the obvious early agent type stuff um, that monitoring used to, to be the only thing that could do. That open telemetry stuff now makes it a standard that we can all benefit from no matter which environment, how about all environments? That would be super nice. And to get tracing and traceability from all the way from the web app that somebody's touching all the way down to the, the database and the 30 different APIs that it touches. That's really useful, not only to firefight in production, but to see 
am I risking dependencies? Am I going wildly off my architecture diagrams? You know what I mean? Like those things slide. You, your, your conceived architecture diagram is never what's actually running in production. <laughs> so to actually be able to have visibility on that is really important. Well, you know, Paul, the, the lines between production and let's say test oh, blurred to use a, to use a, to use a phrase yeah. uh, are, are really kind of blurred And you know, oftentimes when we adopt whatever new technologies or approaches, we'll tend to do what we used to do, just using a new technology to do it. So we'll test the way we used to. And just like, you know, what sort of clicked with me with cloud early on was how Netflix was doing their, their rolling upgrades, right. And being able to flip back and forth. The same is really true for testing and performance testing because your you, your re availability to resources generally is not an issue or not the issue it would be normally in an environment where you're not in the cloud or at least partially in the cloud. So there's a lot of things you can do, not just in your current testing environment, but to set up pretty elaborate um, with resources to, to do different load tests, performance tests, scenarios, in addition to what you experience in production. And, if, and I think one of the points that you made is salient is if you're paying attention to this, you now understand your systems, your applications, your environment yeah. enough to identify, well, we may be able to handle the, the number of unemployment claims we're getting today, but I know when we reach the next peak, these are the three things that's going to impact. I know those are the things we have to go adjust or fix or whatever it might be because you've already instrumented it well enough and you have the information through observability to be able to, to do that. So I think that's a, a different mindset about how we think about performance testing. Yeah. I, I, so I'll tell you, I think one of the big breakthroughs in Dev, of DevOps has been to create our, you know, quote unquote, testing environments to be more lifelike, to be more real life like, right? I mean, because prior to DevOps, right, in the world I grew up in, the classic thing was, you know, the developer developed, gave it to the ops guy, the ops guy puts it up and says, wait a second, this, this stuff don't run. And he says, hey, developer, this doesn't run. And the developer says, I don't know, dude, ran on my machine, right? And, and so there was that disconnect between what the developer wrote and ran it on or, or they tested it on versus the real life production environment, right? And one of the great things about cloud and virtualization and, and all of this stuff is that we can th theoretically um, really duplicate our production environments in, in test environments and we could increase loads and we can, we could do all of those things theoretically, right? So that there's no or less surprises in the in when we go live, right? In, in production, and that look, that's thank thank you DevOps, right? You know, that's part of what this whole DevOps thing I think was. Um, but I don't know, is is Christine? Is that is that really is does that dog hunt or is that just? DevOps urban myth. Yeah, I think <laughs> you know? I think you're I think you're on right on this right on the ball. Um, I mean, when when Charity and I started Honeycomb, um, she came right. That story you told, I was that dev, she was that ops. I did the mm -hmm. whole like works on my machine. I don't know what you're talking about. And yeah. when we started Honeycomb, we we thought honestly we were going to be talking to more charities in the world. 
we were like, oh, well, this is, this is a tool for ops people. They're the ones who understand the pain. And as Honeycomb grew and as observability grew, it became more and more obvious. No, this is for the Christines of the world too, right? Mm -hmm. This is for the people who need to understand what happens beyond that testing environment. This is, you know, the, the boundaries are blurring or I, I like to think of it as dev and production are coming closer together because yeah. there are more and more things we just can't test in a test environment. As good mm -hmm. as we make the test environment, we just can't. Totally and there are so many things that can be learned the same uh, by, by thinking of production as part of the development environment, right? With feature flags, we can start to take code yeah. that is, you know, really not quite ready for production, but test it out in a safe way and learn from it. And that's so cool. It's, there's so much for developers to be able to learn when everyone kind of gets over this mindset of, well, there's a wall between development and production. There isn't. There shouldn't be between people or the software. And um, that's where that's where all the exciting parts live. I don't disagree. So Alan, one disagree. thing that you said one thing that you said, uh, you, you painted sort of the 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 stage so that we could have part of this conversation. Um, I'm not a big fan of setting up huge staging environments. Right. In classic world, it was like, okay, well, here's production and it uses 36. Oracle backends, and if we're going to run a proper performance test, of course we need 36 on our side. And before the cloud, that was incredibly expensive, and you'd fax your IT person, and they'd get back six months later with the right hardware. And I think there's a myth that, um, well, yeah, you need to be realistic at some point, right? Um, especially when you're like putting pressure on a system. To answer the final question, which is. What, is it ready enough for me to be, what, confident enough that this thing is going to transition? Like we talk about in, in standards, the transition process, that that's actually going to go smoothly and not in a waterfall way, just in a, you know, to get away from this notion of worked on my machine and, and now the ops person's putting out fires and doesn't know how to operate the thing. Um, but I'm not a big fan of, of spending a ton of money on this like staging system, which ultimately even if, even if at the very root level, it's exactly the same as the production system, there's always that jerk in the corner going, yeah, but it's not production. And it's like, yeah. okay, you have a point, <laughs> but you don't know what goes on. And, you, and the point is, I think almost like a, I'm gonna do my, my, my idiot thing and pull in a math, mathematical and then probably get it wrong, a mathematical concept of the limit, right? You remember limits? And the idea is like, we need to be able to express, are we talking about the very ends of things? No, it's a continuum. So there's a lot of companies that I work with that actually do have requirements that they go through a particular amount of testing and particular things, right? Before they can transition this to production. They don't have the luxury of treating production like a dev system. There is a ton of people in the world and it's not their dysfunction. That's not a dysfunction. Right? Just because the unicorns can fart rainbows and sneeze glitter and and like launch whatever they want. Um, I, I see that happening in Boston all the time in some of the startups, and they do actually put themselves at risk, right? And even when you don't do that, when you have an extreme amount of maturity and you're working with relatively complicated technologies like Kafka, right? Things can go wrong pretty quickly. And the question is, 
do you have the people and the process and the technology and the knowledge and the experience and the expertise to handle those when those things do come up in real time? How do you get there? How do you get to people who know how to use your monitoring and observability tools really effectively? How do you know what those systems, how close to your perceived architecture versus your actual in production? How do you know how, how much delta there is there, right? How, how often do you exercise the process of disaster recovery is, is one of those other classic questions you might ask yourself. And it gets back to who would be involved when there is a firefight or a last minute thing like what we've done with some of the, the companies uh, that I've worked with very closely uh, through the Neoload uh, side of things is, you know, when, when the education system, right, when colleges shut down and they finally said, we are shutting our, our doors to the people that are paying us money. That was a scary and real and significant flag for the rest of our US education system to go, holy crap, we, we're going, we have to provide virtual, not as a stopgap for the past few months, but this is going to be a serious reality for us for the next year. And so a lot of the vendors that help the education system have the right platforms in place, they go, holy crap, we really need to test for 10X the size that we've ever tested before. So they're testing in production right? On nights and weekends and various different places and doing it at smaller, smaller pace. But who do they have on the call? Not just the Ghostbusters, but the, the devs, the ops, there's people from uh, infrastructure, the DBA teams, right? They have 20 plus people white knuckled on the call, you know, like the uh, white knuckled on the call. And that's a lot of money, right? And by the way, you're asking them to do from like, you know, 10 p.m., to 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. work. And so they're, they're not gonna be available for all those fancy meetings, architecture meetings that they should be stakeholders at. So when you get to the point where you're doing those massive things, sometimes it's necessary to go massive, right? But the vast majority of the exercises, right? The, the, you go to the gym, not so much me, but you go to the gym to exercise. You go on, you get on your bike and that's an exercise. You don't expect to run a race without exercising first, without knowing that path a little bit before you just run a 5K race. So why would you expect to do that with your systems and your teams? And that's where some of the testing, the, the lower order performance testing comes into play, is systematizing the stuff, making it process that can be executed and re-executed, no matter which environment it's pointing to. And the telemetry that you're getting out of it aligns in each of those environments. You know, if, if all of a sudden we, we have really great telemetry in a pre-prod environment, but we don't have it in prod, that would be a big problem. Why was it put in here and it's not represented in production? What if we need that or vice versa? We're only doing things in production. And so now there's, only, there, there's stuff that's only in production that has no representation of how it would show up um, at, in lower environments. So keeping those things in synchronous but also keeping the process and the and the exercised skills in place is is why this isn't just a big environment at the end kind of situation. Again, I, I think, you know, thank you, DevOps, right? Where we have been able to to say, okay, not only do we need those or can we use those testing dev environments, but as Christina said, with things like feature flex 
and and some of the other you know technologies processes that we use it it, it is possible to continue that the feedback loops and iterations in real time right while using the while in production we don't you know and that that again is one of the things that allows us to continually update continually iterate continue you know the, the and 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 you know feedback loops was, is kind of an original concept as part of this devops thing right we're going to have those feedback loops and we're going to iterate and reiterate but where we've gone with observability with that and with performance testing and and these things with that have really just opened the floodgates in in how in how we do these things now I mean, just think about how, when I first started DevOps.com eight years ago, right? I mean, there were the unicorns who were updating multiple times a day. But for many people in the world, for many organizations in the world, look, moving from uh, once a year to twice a year, twice a year to quarterly, quarterly to monthly, was huge, was huge. It's not so huge anymore. P it, it's, it's common for people to be updating their code daily or more than once a day now right i i, I saw I, I did an interview this week a recent survey of developers who you know they claim that they have sped up their deployments by over a hundred percent in the last year and a half right that was something like 70 percent of developers said that think about it. i mean that's that's, you know, a billion here, a billion there. You're talking real money. 70% of developers say they're going 100% faster. Wow. Wow. What, what, what a golden, great time to be living. And it's because of things like observability, DevOps, you know, our better performance testing. Anyway, guys, we're, we're coming up on, on our time limit here. I wanted to kind of, let's wrap it up. Let's... What what advice for our, for our folks listening and watching in here? What can we give them? What can we tell them about this nexus of observability and performance that will make their lives better? Paul, you, I'm gonna if you don't mind, I'm gonna put you on the hot seat and ask you to go first. Sure. Uh, well, there's a couple things I've been working on for a while, and then there's a couple things that I just want to give a shout out to. I'll start with <laughs> Christine doesn't get to do the, the the pitch thing, but uh, I do. Honeycomb is awesome, right? You see that thing in, in play uh, and it's awesome because the team behind it is awesome. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of the Conway's law situation where, you know, this the the version of it I, I hear most is the systems are a result of the teams that build them. So uh, definitely check that out. Um, same thing with, with some of the other tools around there, but don't get too bought up into the whole observability. Like don't just Google observability and look at the first one because most people are paying through the nose for SEO placement there. Um, really actually look at what's, what's available and then also dig into the team, the blog, like the spirit behind that thing, right? Um, the, the second thing I'd suggest is uh, we just released, I was one of the members of a working group uh, for a standard on DevOps principles and practices that applies to highly regulated industries. It's IEEE 2675-2021, which we're hoping to get adopted in ISO, so it's global as well. And what it does is really align 
Um, what is, how, how are each of the important processes that can be applied continuously throughout many different life cycles as they're going along, you know, that DevOps eternity symbol that means we're all going to be stuck in hell forever, right? That thing is happening. All the things are happening all the time, but there are precise things that, that need to go on in highly regulated industries and even not, right? So we've been working on that for four years and um, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, on Twitter, although LinkedIn is probably a better way to go. Uh, if you want to know more about that, but essentially it's, it's a body of work that a lot of people have been putting uh, time and effort into to really say, Hey, look, this is not about what DevOps is. This is about how to do this in these complicated situations. And you know, me as a performance geek, I tried to, I was involved in QM, QA, uh, verification, validation, risk management process, those kind of things. And I tried to make sure that evidence-based decisions, right. Um, that which is a hook to basically say visibility, telemetry, right? The proper SLOs in place. Those are those, those are definitely in the standard along with other things. So uh, definitely check those two things out, Honeycomb and the IEEE 2675. Excellent, Paul. Christine? Thank you for that plug, Paul. Um, the one piece of advice I'd like folks to internalize, we've talked quite a bit about, right, I've talked a bit about developers in production and developers in observability. A, a, an asterisk there is that that is not the practices, like the, the muscles and the practices should transfer well, but there are a lot of things in the DevOps world in production that are, well, in some cases outright hostile to developers. Um, and in, in many cases, just kind of scary and unfamiliar. And so if this is something that's interesting to you, if you're like, ah, yes, I would also like to bring development and production closer together, take, an, you know, take a step back and look for things like that. Do your production tools primarily talk about um, AWS instances and CPU and memory use? Those may be things you're, that might scare your developers off. How can you, how can you make the, the vocabulary that your production tools talk about more familiar? to developers? How can you help them bring the concepts and nouns that they're used to in testing customer ID or, or you know, endpoint or, or logic, some, something right that, that feels more familiar to the developer world? How can you have that exist in your production tooling as well so that developers can show up and be like, oh, oh, this isn't so different. Um, I, think, I think that there's, there's a lot of things that are in, encoded in, in certain practices because we assume that a certain persona is the one using them. And you know, those walls are blurring or those walls are coming down, those edges are blurring. Um, there's a little bit of work left to do to facilitate it. Absolutely. Hey, Mitchell, you want to bring it home? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up this way because there's some great practical advice. And, and by the way, both companies have fantastic products, so please check them out. Um, I think we have this mental model, this habit of thinking of things in one state. You know, matter has four states, well, five states if you count Higgs Boseman, Boseman, uh, Bose Higgsman. Um, it, it, it's not just solid, it, it is also like fluid. I mean, think of our system, don't think of it as software tools, all the layers of it. Combined together, they operate more like a fluid in a, in, in a state that's changing, constantly moving, things are happening. 
And that causes you to rethink like developers in production, doing production, doing performance testing in a production environment. And, and the flow of software through that DevOps tool chain is really part of that, the fluidity of that state. So I think we like to think things of things as let's make everything a solid so it doesn't change, so we can look at it, observe it, you know, do something with it. It's not really that way. That's not the world we live in today. But if you think about it as something that's under constant change, like a fluid, then I think we have much better uh, chance of figuring out better ways, whether it's through technology, new paradigms, new ways of working, of how to make our software the best it can absolutely be. And at the end of the day, that's what we all strive for, right? All right, what a great way to end this then. This is a wrap. I think it's episode 13 of DevOps Sundown, but it's a wrap on whatever number this was because it's fluid anyway. Um, it's a wrap of this episode of DevOps Unbound. Many thanks to Tricentis for sponsoring us on DevOps Unbound. We will be back in two weeks with another great episode. Stay tuned. We also have a, a, a big roundtable coming up this month. Check that out. Um, Paul, hey, man, congratulations on joining the Tricentis team as part of Thank the acquisition act. there. Christine, you know, they've all said great things about Honeycomb, but well-deserved. Say hello to Charity for us as well. I will. Thank Keep you. doing what you're doing. I hope to see you all soon or a couple months from now in person. Maybe we'll do a live DevOps Unbound at some con somewhere. But um, until then, this is Alan Schimmel for MediaOps. You've just watched DevOps Unbound. Mm -hmm.